tonight I'd like to speak about aligning the mind and the body, which you would think would be a rather obvious alignment. You'd think that the mind would uh, acquiesce to being a caregiver of the body, that it would take that as a serious, responsible task throughout its life, and that it would just be a, an obvious um, alignment. And yet, uh, it's so contrary to that, isn't it? <clears throat> In fact, if we care give the body at all, often it's with a great deal of reluctance and half-heartedness, and uh, often with a kind of indulgence, which begins to show uh, on the body, through the body, as we program our mental indulgence into the body, it begins to grow in ways that we often resist, but it grows in accordance with the mind's um, attitude. And so, um, we have to look at this very seriously and look at the reasons why the mind has such um, uh, such a a different location usually than where the body resides. In fact, the coordinates, it's hard to see that the coordinates are even on, on the same graph. Uh, and you, one uh, expression of dharma, you might say, in terms is to bring those coordinates so that they bear and cross at, at, the, at the zero point on the x and y axis. And we, uh, there are many um, physical, uh, uh, spiritual journeys in and of themselves that are like yoga and tai chi, uh, which are body-centered. <clears throat> but uh, yoga in, it actually means union, and that union uh, means very much bringing those two, gra- those two axes uh, in, the, in alignment with one another. And many yoga teachers, or I experienced many yoga teachers in the West, uh, not even having an understanding of how to do that and teaching very much a physical or stretching exercise or body-centered, but without the understanding of how the mind fits in relationship to the body. Uh, And uh, that alignment of body and mind is so precious and so important to whatever... Uh, spiritual journey we face because ultimately it has to be lined up period that's uh, the end of the the dispute it really requires that for awakening yet we find that we have arrived here physically and have brought our paraphernalia with us we've settled into our rooms we now logistically know how to get to the dining hall, which is the important point. And we um, settle down in, in on our cushions and uh, begin to follow the directions of, of sustaining our attention upon the breath. And lo and behold, the mind is off. It's off and running. It's minutes, perhaps, that before the mind has an, any inclination that it's doing anything that 
uh, is not aspiritual, a that it's pursuing anything other than what it was told to do. And then it wakes up and says, my God, where have I been? And it's always interesting to me that we are surprised by that fact because what do we think our life has been up until this point? I mean, if the instructions are so easily stated as allowing one's attention to sit comfortably with the breath when we meditate and how difficult it is to do that when we meditate, how difficult is it when we don't meditate and how much of the time are we actually in connection with ourselves when we aren't meditating? You can see that probably barely at all. And uh, if you've been in uh, around people who are dying, uh, people who have, um, there's a, often a, an, a realization of how separated they have been from their lives because they haven't connected with their body. And uh, there's a, a way that the dying uh, can bring us back into alignment with that. Um, but it's often after an enormous amount of grief and uh, lack of forgiveness from having been so separated for, genera- for uh, decades in oneself. Uh, and there are many reasons. I want to explore some of the reasons why uh, the mind goes running hither and thither while the body always stays present. It's never anywhere other than where it's planted. Uh, so why, why does the mind find it so difficult to be in relationship to the body? Uh, well, one of the reasons is um, because of the lack of forgiveness, because of the remorse in the past that has taken its toll upon us. And we try to, as I mentioned today, um, square the accounts mentally. Uh, and we try to come to some degree of acceptance in ourselves for what we have done. But let me say up front that you can't think your way into acceptance. Because um, what you're trying to do is to get over the fact that you did something that lacked integrity. And that fact you can't get over. And to, you, so you can't think yourself out of the truth which was that you did something that lacked integrity. And yet that's how we try to work it. We try to work the forgiveness button by thinking and rationalizing, sort of rearranging the scenario of why we did what we did. But inside we know. We know. That's one of the reasons I believe that uh, the Buddha, well, I know that the Buddha emphasized preceptual living ethical conduct so strongly is because the mind won't line up with the body when it's unethical. It, it's, it gets uh, immersed in its own inward conversation of rationalization and denial. It gets lost in its paranoid reflection of whether it will be discovered, the lie or whatever behavior it's being done. And all of that requires us being far away from the body in time and space. And we begin to see that the only way that the mind and body can locate itself on the crosshairs of that axis is to have ethical behavior, to be in alignment with what is true. And uh, that becomes one of the fundamental tenets of one's practice when we realize that. Not because um, it's uh, necessary 
It's a, it's a necessary prerequisite to get on with it, which it is. But that you're not force, you don't force yourself into it through uh, shoulding or I must be ethical. It's not that. It's just that uh, from a certain view, from a certain connected view, uh, in, uh, unethical behavior doesn't make any sense. And so it lines itself up. And uh, the chicken and egg is, however, that in order for it to line itself up, there must be ethical behavior. So we start off offering the precepts in whatever way you understand them, do them. And then it starts making more and more sense. Uh, And I'll talk about the precepts at a later uh, point in the retreat. But that sense of ethical alignment where I know today we mentioned that um, not to come into the... uh, meditation hall late if you could possibly do so. The one exception is people who are caught in their yogi jobs. And so people who come in and late, they can hold a kind of integrity regardless of what people might be thinking. You know whether you're coming in legitimately late or not. And if you are because of the yogi job or whatever, then there's this alignment that it doesn't matter if the rest of the people think, oh, that guy, what's the matter with him? He's always late at this time in the morning. It doesn't matter to you. What matters is the alignment in yourself. And that's essential. That is essential in bringing this new uh, evolved consciousness to fruition. So what are some of the what are some of the reasons that it's so difficult to line our mind up with our body outside of the ethical and lack of forgiveness? Um, it's interesting, you know, the mind really doesn't know how to connect with much of anything. It, it's not a soft, warm, fuzzy thing. It's more like the ethics, has the ethics of a slide rule. Should, should not, must, have to. That's how, that's how, it's a ruler. It rules. And it rules with an iron fist for the most part. It's not um, very tender. uh, And it's not very connected. And so to connect with the body, it it knows how to rule this thing. It doesn't know how to connect with it. I was I was at a physical therapist uh, some time ago, and uh, he was showing me some exercises for a back condition I had. Uh, and I he had me on the table. And he said, "Okay, let me see you do the exercise I taught you last week." And I was pushing and pulling and straining. And he says, "You know, the whole thing works much better when you're gentle." And I thought, "Oh, I hope he doesn't read my my vocation on the on the." <laughs> medical form I filled out I mean I know that but when it gets you know when you when you're <laughs> there you are in stress and strain because God damn it this thing is going to line up whether I like it or not you're going to muscle it um, and it takes a long time for the mind to learn to counter its 
a muscular influence and to begin to um, integrate a, a new way into itself, into both its observation of itself, but also the observation of the body. It can't do it in the same uh, hard, driving, ambitious, striving way that it did everything else in its life. How, how it got you through your athletic or PE requirements. It requires a, a kind of tender warmth. It retire, requires um, a soft approach, a gentle approach uh, to, to begin that integration. Because ultimately, uh, the insights we have have to reorganize the body cellularly. It, it's within the structure of the body that the changes ultimately have to take place. And so we better learn how to connect with this thing. How mentally, uh, psychically, spiritually, to connect with the body. Uh, not in terms of its demands, but in terms of a sensitivity that allows uh, the body to have its say, to have its day in court, rather than uh, the muscular and hard-driving way that most of us treat our body. So one of the uh, simple is that we haven't learned how to connect. We haven't learned the qualities of heart necessary for that connection to take place, like kindness and caring and listening to what the body needs. Listening. Um, I, there was a yogi on retreat uh, not too long ago who was very sick, but by God she was going to give herself up to the sittings. And I said, well, what, what kind of sensitivity is that? Why don't you go to bed, which is what your body wants to do, listen to your body, and just make the whole retreat your willingness to listen to your body. And it will be a very successful retreat, even if you spend the whole time in bed. Rather than trying to force it into a kind of a disciplined soldier military way to get it up and get it sitting. That's adharmic. That's adharma. Against the dharma. Anytime we listen to anything, we, have to, we connect with it depending upon how we listen, which is another talk. But the possibility of connection is there through our listening, through our attunement to what it is that's going on. And attuning to the body. What is the needs of the body? What is it feeling like now? And the older I get, the more I need to do that. Because it, does, it doesn't have endless energy. It doesn't have the resources or stamina that I had. And yet I'm... I have in my mind how I used to run and how I, many miles a day and all of that. And I try to do that and I'm flat on my back after the second day. So it's, re, it's, it's a, an increased requirement with age. But you'll find it increasingly difficult with age as well because we don't like the way it's going, which is another reason that it's difficult to enter the body is it deflates our fantasies. It gives us a taste of realism, doesn't it? We're getting old, period. 
Now you can play with all the window dressing you want to, but with makeup and clothing and all of that. But the fact is, if you, when the truth is that we're getting old and it's beginning to change uh, in our body. And so the body bears a truth that we don't want to hear. We don't want any part of this truth, to be honest. And so there's an enormous amount of denial or a lack of, or a sense of fear and trepidation in going to this thing at all. And feeling our way through it. Because it really does hold uh, the essential laws that govern the Dharma. And change, transition, and ultimately death, aging. We were talking today about how do we accept that? How do we accept our aging? Um, Well, as long as there's a kind of judgment associated with aging, we're not going to accept our aging. As long as we feel and we have the memory of having been young and what we could do back then, we can't figure our way out and accept the aging process because always in the back of our mind is the knowledge of what we used to be. But the same way that you listen to the bell when it rings, as opposed to the meaning of the bell, which is to come to the meditation, you can listen to the body in a vertical position that allows acceptance to take place now, free of judgment. If we right now just connect with the body, just feel the body for what it is, not for what it represents, not for what it used to be, not for where it's going, inevitably, not for its limitations, but from its experience, but from the connection of the experience with the body in this moment as its own life, then there is immediate acceptance and non-resistance to that fact. It's just that we can't work it so that it's ever what it used to be. So as long as it's a horizontal time approach to the body, we will fail in our willingness or our ability to accept it for what it is in this moment. For in this moment, it will never live up to what it used to be in a previous time. But it will if we drop the previous time. And everything then is a doorway into acceptance if we learn how to invite the vertical response rather than the horizontal time approach of what it means to get old and to labor with the fact of the pains and all of the different piled on discouragement that we give ourselves that has nothing at all to do Because this moment, the body lives for itself in this moment and not for its time in history. And yes, there are limitations to that, but so what? What we're developing in the Dharma is a flexibility, is a willingness to move along with those changes. The definition of pain is a fixed response to change, is a reluctance to move. 
What are we learning here, may I ask, is another way of saying that. So let's look, again, let's look at some of the other. Another reason the mind doesn't like to connect with the body or be in location with the body because it feels tied down. It likes to springboard its way away from any sense of commitment at all. It doesn't want to be a caregiver. It's tied down when it has to stay put. Left alone, it can dance wherever it wants to. It can dance towards its desire, its fear, its memory. It can go anywhere. That's the wonderful creative response of the mind, right? Go anywhere. Do anything. Create anything, right? That's why we encourage imagination in the young. Yeah, but you also see where it goes and what it does when it has its own life, when it's not governed. It'll take you to heaven, but it will take you to hell. And you aren't going to be able to decide which direction it goes in. And we think, well, a free mind is a mind that you can just go, right? Move with its desires. Move with it, whatever, wherever it wants to. Hogwash. It's not a free mind. That's a mind that's habituated and conditioned to its desires, to the forces on which it acts. It's a contracted mind. The mind that dances with its desire. Free mind is on a completely different dimension than the movement of thought. It has nothing at all to do with the movement of thought. And once we release the mind to move with thought, we've essentially made it ungovernable and not responsible to anything, least of all you. But the mind doesn't like the sense of commitment. We don't want to be committed. We want to pass through on our way out. Touch the body and move out. Move off. Like a rock that skips on the surface. Touch the lake and and skip off. Move somewhere else. In fact, put so much distance between ourselves and this thing that reminds me of my mortality, this bodiness, this materiality that I can. The more distance, the better. And the more denial. What else? What are some of the other components of... What happens when we come into the body? When we bring our attention to the body? We begin to notice... Uh, that it isn't all that pleasant. In fact, we have a whole history with this thing that is rather unpleasant. And to re-enter the body, to reclaim those coordinates, means we have to go through the very reason that we left it to begin with. And often those reasons are uh, full of scar tissue. Uh, because we haven't been self-accepting. We, our body didn't turn out like the pages of these magazine covers. That we were ridiculed, perhaps, when we were small. Or we were inhibited or something. So, but the scar tissue for most of us is very he- heavy and laden, especially if we have something like an abused history. 
where the body has represented a sense of unsafeness. And those memories are engendered in the body. So to come back into the body is to recover those memories. Who wants that? And we don't recover them 20 years later at the maturity of 20 years because they were locked in there 20 years ago. That's how they come out with the same ferocity in which they were originally engendered and the same maturity. And if that was pre-verbal, then it's pre-verbal. And is it any wonder then that the ripple effect of our history keeps us outward bound from the body, distant to it? And the emotional residues, the emotional emissions that come in anyone's life, not just an abused child or person's life, but any time we come into the body, there's an there is emotional residue that has coated itself within the body. And when you are quiet, that residue starts springing forth. Those areas of trauma, those areas of stress, those areas of deep emotional impact that we all have. I remember uh, my first meditation retreat I ever did was a month-long sweeping meditation. And feeling well, I'd get down I'd sweep my attention from my head and I'd hit my knee and it would feel like sandbags from my knee down and I thought and, and, and the emotional was um, the closest I can come to it is chalk on a blackboard the etching sound of chalk that feeling when it's really biting into your backbone that feeling or chewing on aluminum foil. That's another one that comes to mind. <laughs> Where it just, you just, it's like that. And so I would touch this thing. I would spring back. I said, oh, God, what's going on? So I went to the teacher and, of course, he just wanted to encourage me further in, into the depth of that thing. And it's an excellent, excellent Vipassana response, he said. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> Or we can just be sitting, you know, and have this kind of memory that comes unlocked in this body. We begin to see that there isn't, the distance between the mental and the physical isn't very, um, in fact, it's much more interconnected than we ever believed. One of the ways that we can even begin to understand the body is that it's hardened mind. When you bring your attention to bear upon the body, you can begin to feel the qualities of mind contained within. And yet the Buddha called this a foundation of mindfulness. How could he have been so off base? How could this be a foundation of mindfulness when it seems to contain all the history of my angst, of my aversion, and perhaps it's because it contains that. And also provides a base on which to operate through that with stability, with centeredness. That it is a foundation. 
We're not going to get out of anything in this minute. We've got to go through it all. So let's just start shoveling the dung. It's not, we don't get out of anything. We don't get away from anything. We can't bypass the body in order to. So it's there. It holds the fundamental laws. And the emotional residues of my life. So let's go. Let's just start the journey. And as we learn how to work with those difficulties, we become fearless in relationship to them. Those sandbagged legs of mine, 30 years later, are still pretty much coated with that kind of density. And... I've learned the nutrition of aluminum foil. (laughs) But you see, we like to think ahead of ourselves, don't we? We're really not so interested in residing in the body as we are in thinking ahead just a jump, a space or two, a moment or two, or maybe a year or a onward, but we love this kind of planning mentality that the mind can do to make our journey safe in its next step, in its next step. And so, really energetically, we're not so interested in being here and now. In fact, here and now feels kind of dull to us. Feels a kind of a, somewhat contrived and not very exciting. When I can dance my future and decide exactly what I want to do, ten steps ahead of where I am, why be here? We love the feeling of that mastery of time, of having it all set up for us. You know, you go to a financial planner and he says, you got enough. And that's what we like, is the financial planning of our lives where now we can just kind of coast. We've done the work, now we can coast because we planned our future. We love the feeling of the security of that until we get a lump in our breast or until an earthquake shakes the ground See, it can't be planned. It's impossible to derive security. Even if you're Bill Gates, no matter how much money you have. And that sense of inward humility into the truth of our abiding insecurity, that's where the Dharma rests. And so it calls the mind back again and again. Why? Not because it's a delight to rest in the body when obviously there is much turmoil yet to face. But because it sees the futility of the attempt to plan. Of the attempt to hold something as insecure and unpredictable as the next step of life in a secure and planned way. 
And as we come back into the body, we are faced with the messages of our own pain. We are faced with the messages of our physical condition. condition. We are faced with having been a half-hearted caregiver to this body. And as we bring our attention back in it, we see where we're hurting and how we hurt. And we have spent our life trying to flee, trying to get out of being corralled in the pains of the world. And here is a body that seems to hold nothing but the pains of the world. And so we are forced, if we understand, we are forced then to develop a relationship with physical pain. And we see that physical pain has a mental component that is far worse than the sensations of unpleasantness that the pain contains is the fear response that we give because the mind is so used to driving itself into the future and thinking where this pain is going to go and how awful it's going to be if it's this bad now, how terrible the next corner, around the next corner it will become. Fear is a very accentuated and exaggerated, we give it exaggerated significance. Because fear is always how this thing is going to turn out, never what it is. And we have to deal with that when we enter the body. And we have to deal with our sense of self-dislike. Because that's where the rooster comes home to roost. Because this image, we have an image associated with the sense of me. And the body encases that image. And so we have to deal with that. So we're dealing with a lot when we enter the body. Is it any wonder that there are pandemonium uh, uh, senses of restlessness and enormous uh, qualities of dullness as we try to drug ourselves through the process of being in the body. It's not an easy task. But as we get more and more interested in the body as the holder of the mind and how the mind and body are fused into a single, a single experience, then we understand that to experience the body straight on is really to deal directly with the mind. And when we deal with the mind, ultimately, when we're quiet, we 
we find not only is it all workable, but that it is only substantial within our thoughts. That when we're quiet, as if we could just do that for this moment, and feel the body for what it is, not for what we think it to be, what is it? What is this body? Feel the space within it. Feel the enormous vacuum, quality, the volume as the mind integrates itself into the body. And it's much more like points of reference rather than an assured outline. It's like those drawings that have a number of dots and that when we open our eyes we have laced all those dots together to form the image of me. But when we close our eyes all there are are random points of sensation. And which is more true? The image of our belief about the body or the reality of the experience of it. And so the whole sense of self-image begins to shift when we integrate our minds and our attention within the body. And the body is the holder of a great stillness as we journey deeper in and through those sensations, no longer avoiding or prolonging any of them, there comes a time, there comes a moment in which we find that the body is based in stillness. And stillness does not hold much form or representation for us either. It's, in fact, very amorphous in terms of my own identity. In fact, it doesn't hold identity at all. And so the last and perhaps most profound reason we stay far away from the body is that we fear the stillness that it contains. We sense, and perhaps we even at some depth know, that the body will take us like a black hole into the neverland of emptiness. And so the terror of not being is contained within the very image and expression and manifestation of being. And the journey then invites a reinterpretation of what we have thought to be so personal and ends up so impersonal. 
what we thought to be so specifically mine and is so interconnected, what we thought to be so solidly based and is so full of space and wonder, what we thought to be the scar tissue of my past to be just the emissions of the present. Age, sickness, and eventually death. To base ourselves in the body is to move through all the great challenges that life has to offer. And to do so with a kind of integrity that allows the learning that's necessary for the freedom And that's why it's the first foundation of mindfulness. Because it's all here. We need not go anywhere else for it. And because it's always with us, the lessons are always within the reach of a single contact to be learned. We need not go to the Himalayas or to the deep caves of the forest. All we need to do is to make that gentle contact and allow the body to show us the way to wonder. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.